to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Typically just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history, <laughs> or women that should be famous and are not, which is this case. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Larissa Reinhart. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here with you, too. We're happy to. Larissa is a writer whose work focuses on art, war, and their points of intersection. Her writing has been featured in various publications, but she is here with us today to talk about her upcoming book, First to the Front, The Untold Story of Dickie Chappelle, Trailblazing Female War Correspondent. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, as you said, I'm a writer and I come to it, honestly, um, writing wasn't my first career. Waitressing was my first career and I really worked my way into it. Um, but I, you know, have been writing for several years now and I've really been focusing on, as you said, women who should be famous and you scratch the surface of history. You just sort of enter into any archive. And you will find incredible women that no one has heard of, as you two are well aware of. And so I'm just so passionate about um, uncovering their stories. And I was so grateful to find um, to find Dickie Chappelle's story and be able to to bring it out to life uh, finally after all these years. Yeah. Well, we're so happy that you did. She is so fascinating and gone too soon as people realize in this book um so but before we get into her story we have to get into the cocktail um so this is obviously (laughs) called first to the front and this is she's an adventurous person so i wanted this to be like an adventurous weird cocktail that shouldn't work but it does i promise (laughs) (laughs) so you mix equal parts of whiskey creme de menthe apricot brandy and triple sec and you shake that all up and you pour it into a glass and garnish it with a cherry. And it's um, so green. Ours is green. Yeah, our creme de menthe is green. So <laughs> some of it's white, but <laughs> ours is green. So <laughs> cheers to your book. It's so Thank you. I love I, it. It's, it's it's so good. It's two o'clock where I am, so I have my mate. <laughs> but uh, I'm, you know, I can't wait to try that. It sounds yeah. delicious. You had <laughs> me at whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> So, first off, let's set the scene for your book. Dickie Chappelle was a combat journalist who started her career in 1945 during World War II. How did she get involved in the war, and was it common for women to be combat journalists? So, I'll answer your second question first, because it wasn't common, but it also wasn't unheard of, right? You had female journalists in World War I. Um, in the Spanish Civil War. And then, of course, you have this pantheon of female journalists in, in World War II who are very, you know, very famous and well-known. Um, uh, but she was one of the only journalists who, female journalists, who was covering the Pacific Ocean Theater. Most women were in the European theater um, for, for a multitude of reasons. But she got into it. She... Um, started out actually as a, um, a reporting on air air travel. She actually loved flying airplanes. She knew how to fly. She worked as a secretary for a flying circus, uh, both in her hometown of Sherwood, Wisconsin, and also in Miami. And so that's 
and then and then she developed that into writing about planes and then writing about planes um during the war so that's how she got into it and then her first assignment covering the war wasn't actually in the war itself but in Panama where a number of um units were training for the jungle warfare of the Pacific Ocean Ocean Theater and she did that in 1943 and then during towards the end of the war in 1945 she was able to secure herself an assignment um aboard a hospital ship um in the pacific ocean theater off of, off the coast of iwo jima mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what exactly was her role on the battlefield because like how close was she really getting because it seems like she was kind of all over the place <laughs> Yeah, so women were not allowed in combat at that time, actually. And she thought that was a dumb rule, so she didn't follow it. <laughs> um, and she got, you know, she was the first woman, I and I, you know, I know it's hard to say the only woman because, of course, women's histories are erased all the time. But um, she was the first woman to be on the front of Iwo Jima. I don't think anyone else, any other woman was. And she, I, she was the only woman who was on Okinawa, which was, of course, the last battle of World War II. And she was there, I believe, for a, the a, almost a week, really covering soldiers in combat. It was the first time that she went on patrol. Um, you know, she was in a firefight. Uh, you know, the Japanese soldiers threw a hand grenade at the, you know, small unit she was with. So she was really on the front lines in 1945 when she was 23 years old. I mean, no, she was 25 at that point. So yes, she was in the action, you know, from really the beginning of her career. Wow. And it seems like the soldiers were pretty good to her. They even designed a special parachute that could hold her film. Was that always the case or did she receive pushback from people sometimes? She... Honestly, she was really accepted by military men from the beginning um, because she, for a couple reasons. One, she shared their risks. Mm-hmm. She, When she went on patrol with them, you know, she was in line with them. The, she was equally at risk as they were, and she was okay with that. She kept up with them. For her whole life, she trained like she was in the military. She would, you know, run two miles a day. She could march 25 miles a day up until, you know, um, she was in her 40s. Like, I can't march two miles a day, you know, like, not happening. Um, And the third reason that they accepted her uh, was because she really cared about them. And she was very empathetic. And um, I think they understood that she really was on their side. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that they even made a parachute that could carry her film because it was actually the South Vietnamese Airborne who did that. Hmm. Um, And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but not only did, I think what's really um, particularly unique about Dickie is that she not only covered and embedded herself with U.S. forces, but with forces, um, armed forces around the world. And she received an equal sort of warm welcome again, because they knew that she could keep up with them and that she was on their side. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned Vietnam. And I think that's also an important thing to realize about her story is she starts in World War II, but also ends up covering Vietnam, the Cold War. And I think one of the 
very important things that she also does is she stays in Europe once the war is over and she Mm -hmm. thinks it's really important to, you know, record what's happening because a lot of people just left and we kind of have this perspective that things just went back to normal, (laughs) but they didn't. I mean, what did she find and what was the significance of her work during the post-war? That's a really great question. Thank you for asking. Um, so yeah, as she, as you said, she was in Europe, she was in post-world Europe for three years living out of the back of a refitted baby food delivery truck. Um, and you know, before writing this book, I was also kind of unaware of the circumstances in, in Europe, you know, in, 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 of course, Munich, Dresden, Dunkirk, any number of European capitals, just you know, 40 to 60% of the infrastructure is completely bombed out. You have people living in apartment buildings that are about to fall down in, you know, root cellars and bomb shelters. And so she really sees what is the crater pit of peace, right? Like what happens after war? And while the soldiers might have retreated, the civilians continue to live in that war zone for years and years. Um, so what she, the understanding that she gained, which again was rare, I think in that day was she understood why people were drawn to communism, right? Why they were drawn to this promise, this promise of a utopian future. And she knew that it was a farce, that it was a dangerous lie But she also knew that America wasn't doing enough to combat this lie, that she was a staunch and early advocate um, for the Marshall Plan, which eventually was the foreign aid package that um, helped rebuild Europe. But that didn't come until, um, I believe, 19, I want to say 1947. So that's two years of really no foreign aid to rebuild Europe. Um, And that gave her a... um, a depth of understanding and an incredible empathy um, towards the individuals living under communism that I think was absent from a lot of political rhetoric um, at that time. Yeah. And it, it seems like she was just a very empathetic person. Like she even would reach out and help refugees in Budapest by delivering penicillin. Is this like, is that against the journalist code, like to step away from being objective? Or is this something that a lot of people do and just don't report on? Well, a lot of you mentioned Budapest. Um, you know, she was there covering the Hungarian um, revolution and then subsequent, um, you know, coup by uh, Russian, uh, uh, the Russian military. And there were a lot of journalists who who would go over across the border and help um, refugees over into Austria. That being said, she really did cross the line of objective journalism. She really was a partisan in a lot of cases. Um, but I don't necessarily think that, um, devalues her reporting. Because, again, this was why she was able to get stories that no one else was, because she became um, so invested in these people's stories that she was 
you know, with them every step of the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's something that's really interesting about her is that she is constantly crossing the line between sort of journalists and activists in a way that I think a lot of journalists skirt that line, you know, and as you said, they don't, they don't always report on it. They don't always talk about it. Um, but it, but it does, it does happen. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And I think it's easy, especially in a story like this to kind of get wrapped up in the drama and the politics of, you know, the various wars that she was reporting on. But I would love to know what was her personal life like? And was it difficult for her to balance kind of having a personal life and also sometimes suffering from PTSD from some of the things that she was going through? Yeah, she really didn't. She really invested most of her life in her work. Right. And I think a lot of I think a lot of uh, women of that period had to do that. It was all or nothing. And she talks about this. She talked about it in her autobiography. She was married for 15 years. It was not a happy marriage. Um, and it was a marriage that frankly slowed her down. And so once she got out of that marriage, she never wanted to invest in someone else's dreams again. She just wanted to invest in her own vision and goals. Um, you know, she had a lot of friends. She was well loved and she occasionally had lovers. Um, but she never wanted to settle down again. So it's been said that if she was a man, she would have been hailed as a hero, right? During this time period for her job. Is there a reason that she's forgotten from history? Is it boiled down to gender or is the market kind of over flooded with people like her? Well, okay. So I think there's two answers to this. The first is women. And I mentioned archives at the beginning of this. Women's archives are often not well kept if they're kept at all and they're not accessible right? And there, there's a, so many wonderful art archivists who are changing this. And of course, this is true also of people of color and people of the LGBTQ community. Um, and so, you know, the um, Wisconsin State Historical Society has kept her archives intact for all these years. And I'm, you know, incredibly grateful to them for doing this. And they've done a wonderful job but they're not searchable. You can only access them there. And, you know, you have to be there on site and you also have to know like where they are. And so I think that's part of the reason why she's not as famous as she might have otherwise been. It's just simply access. But I think the greater, the greater issue is that, right, she had three strikes against her um, during her period and um, during her sort of era. One, she was a woman. Okay. Two, she really wrote a lot about how people outside of the United States, and particularly people of color, were fighting the war against communism and winning, and America was not doing their fair share and was not rising to the level of these other people, of these other armies who were fighting against, you know, tyranny. And frankly, you know, white America didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear that we're the best, we're the best. And that wasn't her narrative. You know, she said to 
the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1961 that you are going to lose the Vietnam War if you do not treat the South Vietnamese as your equals and your allies. And she was right. Like, I get chills just saying that. And then the third strike against her was, you know, the left, frankly, at that time, didn't want to hear that communism was equal to tyranny, right? Like, that wasn't discovered. That really wasn't accepted until, um, uh, you know, even the early 1980s, that sort of this Stalin apologist, you know, aspect of the left was finally disregarded. And so she was sort of cast aside by the left, the right, and the center. And we really don't have um, an advocate. We didn't have an advocate for her story um, for all for all these years. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned the archive earlier. We've been talking about that a little bit. What kinds of things are in the archives? Is it her photographs? Is it her articles? Is it maybe a journal that she kept, letters? You know, what kind of research did you do and what kind of sources did you have to get to know her? Well, I read every single thing, every piece of paper that was in the archive. Um, they have kept, you know, her um, her family donated to the archive. I believe it was 14 years after her death, though. So I don't know what was lost. But she wrote um, she wrote an autobiography, and the autobiography that was published was very different from the autobiography that she wrote, and so that was an incredible, you know, wealth of information. Right, this was before email. People wrote letters. She had a very rich correspondence with a number of people, and also writing back and forth to all of her editors as well as her family. Um, she kept field notes all the time, you know, so whenever she was out reporting on a story, she would just jot down little notes with really gripping details that helped fill in a lot of the gaps, right? Because the edited pieces, pieces that she wrote for publication um, did have this sort of veneer over them to a certain degree, as we all do, you know, when we're writing. And the journals really had sort of an incisive sense of personality to them. And then, you know, just like little, little notes, little, you know, her, her laundry bill or her jujitsu um, membership card, um, all these sorts of things. You know, I really spent a lot of time just completely immersing myself in her world, her thought process, her, you know, just her, her life, because she was a writer and she was a prolific writer. And um, yeah, and the other thing that I should mention is that so much of her work was not published. You know, she spent a month with the Sea Swallows, who were uh, anti-communist guerrilla army in the Mekong Delta. And she wrote 100 pages about them, none of which has been ever published. But of course, it's an important piece of the Vietnam War for many reasons. And it's an important part of, of history and it was an important part of her life. So yeah, I was just really grateful to be able to, to spend, to really immerse myself so fully in, in her, in her work and her thoughts. Mm. How did you first find her? Did you stumble upon it while you were researching somebody else or did somebody mention it to you? Was she referenced in another book? So this is really going to date me. Um, I heard about Dickie Chappelle when I was in high school and I worked in a coffee shop 
And every Sunday I would, you know, take my tip money, you know, cause it was in dollar, like actual dollars back then, and, you know, bills. And I would go to the record store and I would buy a CD <laughs> and I bought one Sunday, you know, uh, this this album by Nancy Griffith, who who was an amazing sort of folk singer, Americana folk singer, called "A Clock Without Hands," and this is sort of her, you know, I think opus. Her her, her recognizes her best album, and on it uh, there's a song called "Pearls I View," and it's about Dickie Chappelle. And I listened to this song all the time, and I love this song. And she actually really became, you know, one of my heroes, but. She became like one of my folk heroes, the way that we think about um, John Henry, right? Like, oh, John Henry's amazing, but he's not an actual person. He's just in a folk song. Well, it turns out John Henry is an actual person, and so is Dickie Chappelle. So I didn't, um, I didn't really think about writing about her or um, even delving into her until much later in my life when I was doing my graduate degree. On and I wrote about how. Uh, Cassette tape letters um, fomented dissent within um, American GIs serving in Vietnam. And because she was there, I came across her name and I was like, oh, right, Dickie Chappelle. And so I started diving into her story again. And that's when I kind of, that's when I discovered, you know, just how incredible she was and um, just how sort of buried she had become by by history mm -hmm. well I'm so I, I love that origin story it's so unique I <laughs> we've been doing this show for a long time I've never heard anything like that so mm -hmm. I love it first off <laughs> um and when people read your book when people discover the story of Dickie is there a message that you kind of want them to take away is this is this a hopeful book is it an inspirational book is it a book like an anti-war book like how do you think of the overall message yeah I I hope it's a hopeful book I hope it's an inspirational book I think so often um now and in the past women people of color people of the LGBT community marginalized people are told that their voice doesn't matter that they are wrong that they don't know what they're talking about and that's what happened to Dickie. And looking back, reading her work, her work was incredibly prescient, amazingly insightful, and uh, and relevant to today. And I hope that it inspires people to to listen to themselves, to listen to the diverse voices around them, and to honor and 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 give credence to them. And, uh, you know, I will say one other thing. And Dickie, Dickie Chappelle what, loved America. She loved America. And she loved its, she loved that it stood for freedom. And she wanted it to listen to its better angels. She was an advocate for immigrants. She was an advocate for you know, feminism. She wanted everyone all around the world to have the right to self-determination. And I think I don't, I don't want to sort of nick too much of it, but it's not me. It's, it's her. 
And I think at this critical moment in, in American history where we are looking at a point where we have to fight for our own freedom and the freedom of so many other you know, people, marginalized people, both in our country and around the world, that I hope people are inspired by by her legacy of of um, the quest for for equality and and justice. And I know that sounds a bit um, cheesy, but uh, she was very sincere, and I, I think we need a bit of sincerity um, at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that gave me chills. Good. It job. did. I know. <laughs> I'm so wrapped up in it. Wow. I was like, oh, I had a TED talk. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Dickie with us. Um, I'm hoping that one day we can cover her on the podcast. We have to wait a little bit now that we've done this interview. Um, but And we can use your book as a reference because, you know, her Wikipedia page is dramatically short. So we've done it a couple times where we've taken yeah. a book that somebody's written and we've looped it back around yeah. into source material. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Yeah, that just so more amazing. people can find out about her because, you know, as we said, you know, women get lost in history. So it's important to... Bring them to the front. Mm-hmm. First to the front. First I love it. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Can you tell everybody where they can find this book, where they can find you, where they can find other things you've written? So uh, I'm on Instagram, Larissa Reinhardt. I'm on Blue Sky at Larissa, which is, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey's new not Twitter. Yeah. Um, and you can find First to the Front at your local independent bookstore uh, and, of course, online, um, anywhere that books are sold. perfect perfect well it was so nice to meet you we're so happy to have you here and thank you for sharing dickie's story thank you guys so much i really had a wonderful time thank you